Hello and good afternoon, everyone. Dr. Scott Stoll here with uh, Ruby Live Ask the Doctor. And I'm so happy to see we have so many students that have joined us this afternoon. And uh, happy June to all of you. This is just a great month. And I hope you're all doing well and your gardens are growing well and you're harvesting all that fresh produce from your garden and making such delicious meals. Uh, I just was talking to somebody yesterday who had planted um, 30 tomato plants and uh, they wanted to plant San Marzano's so they could make that really delicious red sauce. And they were hoping to get five to 600 tomatoes um, to make a year's worth of red sauce. So it's a great season. I just love it. And there's nothing better than fresh produce right out of the garden, um, right to your plate every day. In fact, this morning uh, I went out with my daughter. We picked some fresh kale and made a delicious smoothie. And it's uh, such a rewarding process. She has this beautiful little garden right outside of our door and she's six and we had planted a bunch of kale plants and lettuce plants. And now every day we're able to go out and we harvest it together and we take it inside. And she's so actively engaged in that process of growing plants and taking her own plants and making food with them. And it's really connected her in such a beautiful way to the, the whole um, ethos and the whole ecosystem of food, which is, uh, I think, something that we've lost today in America, where we have, you know, fast food and so many pre prepared foods, we, we forget where food comes from, and we forget that, that beautiful experience of growing and harvesting food and taking it into the kitchen and working together, even in, in groups of people to make a delicious meal. So it's a great month. I'm so happy that you're all here, and we're going to have a, a great hour of answering questions. I see we have a long list, and again, um, you know, we'll try to get to as many of these questions as we possibly can in the next hour. Uh, if we happen to not get to a question, the queue will be carried over until next month and we'll be able to get to those questions next month. So we'll start at the top and um, I, just a brief explanation with the questions. I like to give a lot of um, information around the question to try and educate you so you have a background uh, to the answer, which really uh, and my vision for you is that you get a, a good kind of firm foundation of science information so that you can make your own decisions and kind of own assessments when you see things come up or when you read things on the internet, because there's so much conflicting information out there. So if you can understand how it works, then it's very easy to understand the answers when you're looking for them. So thanks so much for all of these wonderful questions. And uh, also, I always like to say, I don't know all the answers. I really spend time every week studying and researching and reading articles to be up to date. But if I come across one that I don't know, I'm happy to do some research and come back the next month. So let's take it right from the top with Callie's question. And thank you so much, Callie, for your question. The first question is, how long does it take for leftovers to become not edible? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, the, uh, the obvious answer in our, our refrigerators when there's mold on top or when it looks green or smells funny, then you know it's not edible and that does happen in our refrigerator we have you know uh, five children now living at home and sometimes things get pushed to the back and you pull it out and it looks a little green smells funny goes right out to the compost um you know ideally you should eat leftovers if they're in a sealed container in a couple of days um, we do start to lose nutrients in our food um, actually from the time that you bring it home and put it in your refrigerator even before you prepare it there's a slow degra degradation of nutrients and phytochemicals. So it's better to eat things fresh and um, 
even your produce, you know, if you buy it, you don't want to keep it more than a couple of days, two to three days maximum before you use it. If you've cooked food, I really would suggest trying to eat it in a, a day or two. If you think that you prepared too much, um, the way to really optimize the saving uh, of your food is to put it in some jars or some bags, freezer bags or, or containers and just freeze it for another day. And that's something that we co commonly will do. You know, if we prepare a bunch of food in our crock pot or our, um, our steamer, we'll just simply take the leftover, we'll put it in freezer bags and put it in for another day. So that's certainly a way to try and, and retain a lot of the nutrients. Uh, and there's lots of ways to, to maintain the freshness and, and uh, prepare food and, and freeze it for another day. So leftovers are great. Uh, one of the common ways that I also use leftovers are for lunches. And uh, if I'm, you know, preparing my lunch for the next day, uh, at dinner time, I just grab a Tupperware and I'll take some of our main dish. I'll take some salad, some steamed vegetables. I'll put a piece of fruit in, I'll snap it on and I'll put that in the refrigerator and instantly I have lunch just in the process of cleaning up dinner. So that's another nice way to use leftovers. We do the same thing with our children too. So hopefully that gives you some general guidance. Um, it's a great question because we don't want to have food waste. Food's expensive. And so as many ways as you can reuse the food, um, you know, you can certainly do that. Also, you know, in our refrigerator, if we notice like the lettuce uh, or our spinach or our kale is just on the edge, we'll chop it up, put it in a freezer bag and freeze it. And then we can always pull that back out. We can throw it in soups, stews and smoothies so we can reuse it that way rather than, you know, losing it. Um, we'll figure out other ways to utilize some of our produce. So that's a great question. Thank you, Callie. I appreciate that. And Sophia has our next question. What anti-inflammatory foods do you suggest incorporating each day? Um, excellent question. You know, there's um, the way to think about this is that the foods that we eat um, generally have an inflammatory or an anti-inflammatory effect in our body. And the anti-inflammatory foods are obvious. It's sugar, you know, refined foods, refined flours, uh, oils, uh, the foods with a lot of preservatives. Saturated fat in animal products can be inflammatory for a number of reasons, which we won't go into right now. Uh, dairy is inflammatory generally to the, the human system. And so those are the inflammatory foods. By adding in anti-inflammatory foods, um, it, it reduces inflammation in a number of ways. And one of the ways is that the, the phytochemicals, the little chemicals, the antioxidants in the food actually turn off genes and they can turn off key gene switches which deactivate up to 400 genes in the inflammatory cascade. And so by eating these anti-inflammatory foods, you're actually turning off switches that turn off entire systems of inflammation in the body. Um, anti-inflammatory foods also have antioxidants and the antioxidants look for these little free radicals that come from um, radiation and from toxins in food and from heme iron and other areas that are causing damage to the cell. And the antioxidants will donate an electron to bind to that free radical and stabilize it and prevent it from causing any further harm. So antioxidants have this big reserve of extra electrons that they can donate to mitigate all the damage that's being caused by these free radicals. And, you know, common antioxidants are vitamin E and vitamin A, uh, and those are in, um, you know, plant-based foods. So as we're eating plants in multiple ways, our body is reducing inflammation. 
So some of the best anti-inflammatory foods are the ones you probably can already guess. Dark leafy greens, including kale-colored bok choy, cruciferous vegetables, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, kales in that same family. Um, berries are an excellent anti-inflammatory. Uh, blackberries, uh, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries. Um, cherries are very good, especially the tart cherries are an excellent anti-inflammatory. Mushrooms are helpful in that process. Um, you can use onion, which is a great anti-inflammatory. Uh, a lot of herbs have very potent anti-inflammatory effects, uh, including basil, uh, oregano, um, and then a number of spices. Um, the number one spice, as we've talked about in the past, um, is the uh, curcumin um, and others like cinnamon, um, cloves, uh, holy basil, you know, that whole family of spices are very, very um, excellent anti-inflammatory spices. So it's generally, you know, that a whole food plant-based diet focused on those foods is a very potent anti-inflammatory diet. And we see in lots of cases, um, people that have inflammation in their fingers and their joints. Um, and you can even see inflammation in people's skin and in their faces. And as they eat an anti-inflammatory diet, the, the tissue inflammation uh, does go down and gets better. So hopefully that gives you some good guidance. It's all the multi-specialty colors of the rainbow that tend to be anti-inflammatory foods. So that's a great question. Thank you. Um, next question. Uh, does leaky, uh, let's see, I'm sorry. Here, we, um, uh, does leaky gut exist? Are lectins dangerous? Uh, so two different questions, Joan, and both very important. First, leaky gut um, is a condition that does exist. It is well recognized in the medical community, and more information is being discovered on how this actually occurs. Uh, and just a brief description of what happens is that you know in our small intestine. Um, the cells have very tight junctions, they're sealed, and that prevents everything in the small intestine from entering the bloodstream. And so um, leaky gut occurs when we get an inflammation in the small intestine, which causes these tight junctions to slightly swell apart, leaving room for some of the larger particles in the small intestine to migrate up and get into the bloodstream. Um, things that cause the leaky gut uh, may include things like um, uh, anything that disrupts the microbiome, uh, including antibiotics, chlorinated water, stress, alcohol, tobacco, heavy animal-based diet. Um, that microbiome, the bacteria that live in the gut, help to maintain the tight junctions. And so as the microbiome becomes disruptive, we begin to get um, a leaky gut syndrome. And so it's the Western diet, it's stress, it's alcohol, it's tobacco, uh, which are disruptors. Once that leaky gut becomes um, uh, open and those toxins begin to migrate up into that area, then we run into the problem of uh, an, an augmented immune system that begins to attack itself. And so the immune system looks and starts to attack other tissues in the body and those other tissues uh, become inflamed. And so leaky gut is kind of the, the genesis step for autoimmune diseases. Um, the other question that you have about lectins, lectins are um, found commonly in plants and, um, you know, they're, they're often, uh, they're a component of beans and lentils. Um, 
and whole grains. And so there was a, a book written by Dr. Gundry, who's a cardiologist, um, and it's called The Plant Paradox. And this book, um, it, it documents, not in a very scientific way, that these lectins can be harmful to the human body. And therefore, we should not be eating beans, lentils, or whole grains because they cause damage and inflammation that are actually a poison to our system. Um, however, the, when you look at the medical literature, there's been only one um, research study that showed uh, harm from beans and lentils. And this research study, this is just my daughter coming back. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, there's only been re one research. The study showed that um, when people consumed beans in a hospital that had not been prepared well, there was actually um, a, uh, a, foodborne, a foodborne poison. And so it was uh, undercooked, underprepared, poorly prepared beans that caused harm in a hospital setting. Um, other than that, there have been no studies and no research to document that lectins are actually harmful. So the, um, it's a hypothetical harm because lectins are in unprepared, uncooked beans and lentils. However, when we cook beans and lentils, it destroys the lectins and they don't cause harm to our body. Um, Dr. Gundry was uh, on the doctor's television show with a good friend of mine, Dr. Joel Kahn, who's a cardiologist. And um, he admitted this on the doctors. You can actually look it up on the internet. And he also admitted that he eats beans and lentils on a daily basis and uh, recognizes that when they're cooked, that the lectins are no longer a problem. And uh, so we don't have to be afraid of lectins. In fact, um, in a survey of the longest lived people groups all around the world, the most consistent uh, and single common dietary factor for all of these people groups was that they ate a cup of beans every single day. And so this has been a part of the history of these long lived people groups. And um, therefore, the lectins are not harmful. They're not poisoning our body. And actually, beans and lentils uh, are very helpful and uh, do amazing things for us, um, uh, including feeding our microbiome. So it's a great question. Thank you for asking, Joan, because it really causes a lot of confusion and a lot of fear when people hear things like this, especially from um, a cardiologist with a really impeccable academic background. However, just a misinterpretation of the uh, information it causes some... some um, fear-mongering uh, in the food circles. So uh, Donna has the next question. Is matcha really good for you? Uh, and matcha can be very good for you. Yes, it's important to get um, organic matcha. And if you can get organic matcha from parts of the world where the soils are not polluted, that would be ideal. Matcha is green tea leaves that are ground up, so you're getting the whole tea leaf. And um, so uh, an organic tea leaf from a uh, unpolluted part of the world um, would be excellent choice. And there are a lot of anti-inflammatory benefits um, and uh, a lot of the phytochemicals that are in uh, EGCG, uh, EG, uh, ECGC um, in uh, the matcha and the green teas have some really excellent um, health benefits. So yes, matcha can be good for you as well. Now remember that green tea has a little bit of caffeine. So if you're caffeine sensitive, um, you want to make sure you're not drinking the matcha in the afternoon. It may keep you awake. So thank you, Donna. It's a great question. Um, Austin has the next question. And uh, he asks, can you elaborate on soy and the concerns individuals have with consuming it? What are qualifying reasons to omit soy entirely, entirely from one's diet? 
So this is a um, this is kind of an important question around soy. Um, for a long time, it was assumed that the phytoestrogens um, in soy products would have an estrogenic effect in the human body. And therefore, there were lots of recommend recommendations not to eat soy or soy products uh, because it would feminize men and cause um, a growth of estrogen-sensitive cancers in women. Uh, just in the last two years, there have been much larger, longer uh, perspective uh, look-back studies, um, and they have found that uh, the soy does not have those negative effects um, in people. It does not increase necessarily the risk of breast cancer in women, and it does not feminize men. Um, the phytoestrogens actually have a protective effect um, in people. is that uh, in many cases, soy products can be highly processed and may not actually be good for you. So, you know, edamame, soybeans uh, are a whole plant food. They come packaged with all the phytochemicals and the fiber, and they can be very beneficial, a great source of protein um, and a wonderful addition to your diet. Um, you know, unprocessed organic tofu and tempeh even better uh, can be a nice addition to your diet as well, especially when you soak them overnight and prepare them and they have some really good flavor. Uh, we start to cross the line when we get into all of the, the fake uh, soy foods, the soy hot dogs and the soy hamburgers and the soy bacon and all these other soy-based products that come with lots of chemicals and lots of oil. Those are not good for you. They actually can cause inflammation and illness. And in my practice, um, it was not uncommon to have uh, lots of patients that would come to see me and they indeed would have um, uh, illnesses uh, even though they were vegan. And I would take a dietary questionnaire and um, they were eating lots of these highly processed soy products. And because of the oils and the chemicals, they were developing heart disease, diabetes, autoimmune diseases, just like the omnivorous population um, eating the Western diet. So, you know, the, the closer you can get to the whole soybean, like an edamame, the better. Um, minimal processing, like a tempeh, which is um, uh, a cultured product or a minimally processed tofu, that's also fine. But, you know, as we get into the more highly processed soy products, we really need to be careful. So thanks, Austin. That's a good question, important clarification. Uh, Kathy has our next question. If a physician tells you not to eat fiber due to colon issues, how do you eat vegan? Um, well, it's, an, it's a good question. And there, there's um, a lot of uh, types of colon issues that, that may or may not be appropriate for fiber. Um, some recommendations from uh, physicians today, because people have irritable bowel or Crohn's disease, they would recommend not eating fiber. Um, and eventually, uh, when those conditions heal, you can eat a very high fiber diet without any long-term implications. In those conditions, sometimes we just have to back up and do smoothies and green juices and barley grass, wheatgrass, and aloe vera to heal the gut, and then slowly, bad, uh, slowly add in cooked fibers before we add in raw fibers. And then that gives the, the gut a chance to heal and the inflammation to go down so that it can tolerate those fibers um, uh, at a different time. Um, 
The other um, aspect is that some people have had bowel resections uh, and they need to be a little bit careful with the amount of fiber that they eat. And they should really eat more cooked foods uh, and more smoothies and eat them in smaller amounts uh, more slowly over the course of the day. And so in that case, um, there may need to be some, uh, you know, uh, manipulation of the diet, some organization of the diet around the types of food that you eat and when you eat them. Um, so, you know, that's, I usually recommend in those cases that somebody works with their surgeon um, because the surgeon understands how much of the bowel was resected to kind of understand how to, to modify the diet. Um, however, those, um, in those cases, I typically will recommend that people consume um, green vegetable juices, um, lightly sweetened with uh, berries in order to expose their body to more of those phytochemicals to um, make up for some of the, the lost benefit of eating some of the vegetables and fruits that they may miss out on. So I hope that gives some general guidance, Kathy. But, uh, you know, in this day and age when uh, surgeons are resecting a lot of bowels and there's lots of surgery um, for gastric bypass and the problems associated with gastric bypass, you know, those can provide some challenges with uh, dietary recommendations. So Brenda has the next question for us. And she says, I'm on a plant-based diet and I take a good amount of B12 and D3. I'm constantly tired. What can I do or what supplements can I take? Well, you bring up a really important question here, Brenda, um, as we step back and congratulations on the plant-based diet. That uh, is the right choice and it, it will help to heal your body. Uh, and it's the best diet, um, you know, uh, because of the research that shows it will reduce inflammation, it will begin to right your system and it will improve your microbiome. However, um, in my practice, when somebody would come to me uh, in a situation like yours, where they say they're eating a plant-based diet, they're feeling, you know, still feeling fatigued, um, it always tells you that, you know, it's, it can be other things other than just the diet that's causing issues. And so I would typically get blood, uh, blood work, you know, looking at, um, iron levels to make sure that someone's not anemic, uh, looking at the thyroid to make sure that they don't have any issues. Um, you know, I live in Pennsylvania, so it's not uncommon for people to have Lyme's disease. And so I would do a, a Lyme titer. So a good medical workup um, is also important uh, because not everything is related to diet. And sometimes we need to identify uh, some of the other causes of, um, of fatigue. Uh, fatigue, you know, uh, can also be caused by uh, sleep disruption or poor sleep. Uh, people that are working night shift uh, can have disrupted sleep during the day and be not get and not getting enough sleep. And so, you know, working on sleep hygiene, uh, exercise, and then also stress. Chronic stress can be another cause of um, chronic fatigue. So, you know, look at all of those aspects of your life. You know, the lifestyle factors. I'm sure you know about sleep, uh, activity, uh, stress management, and diet. And then, you know, a good medical workup I would recommend with your physician just to take a look at all of the components of your health and your physiology to make sure that we're not missing anything else. Uh, the last uh, caveat I would add is that, you know, when someone transitions to a plant-based diet, I typically will tell them it takes about 12 to 18 months for your body to really start to heal and recover. And sometimes it can take your microbiome a little bit longer than that. And so um, typically in an early transition, I'll recommend to people that they use some uh, probiotics to help rebuild their gut and their microbiome. And as the microbiome starts to heal, that can also boost energy as well. 
So I hope that does give you a little bit of guidance, Brenda. And it's really important question. I'm thankful that you asked that question because it's easy for us to, to fall into these, um, these belief systems that if we just change our diet, that everything is gonna get better. And certainly most things get better, uh, but we also wanna practice good medicine. So um, I hope that gives you guidance. And uh, if you're looking for a good plant-based doctor, um, you know there are a couple of good resources, plantbaseddocs.com is a good resource with more than a thousand whole food plant-based uh, practitioners um, internationally and you can find one uh, nearby and um, uh, there are also some other good resources uh, american college of lifestyle medicine can also um, be a good resource and help you find uh, a physician so uh, and they can also work with you and help give you some guidance so thanks brenda that was a great question Uh, the next question is, um, you mentioned that we should have a cup of beans or lentils per day. I heard that beans are acidic and therefore we should not eat too many. If we're worried about calcium absorption, what is your response to this? Um, Elon, thanks, Elon. That's a great question. Uh, you know, the, um, the acid-base balance um, that we often talk about in, in health and that we want to be more alkaline for health. You know, if we look at the comprehensive acid versus alkaline load of a diet, uh, we can begin to see that it's a whole food plant-based diet is predominantly alkaline. And even the small acid load, because of the amino acids in, um, in the beans and lentils is really gonna contribute very little into the um, uh, total acid load of your body. So, you know, eating a cup of beans or lentils every day will not shift you into a more acidic um, physiology where you're gonna be stripping calcium out of your bones. The high acid load really comes from, you know, oils, saturated fats, and, the, um, and a heavy meat-based diet. So <clears throat> beans and lentils, uh, even though they're mildly acidic, <clears throat> are not gonna change uh, your system and, and strip calcium out of your, your bones or, your, or cause mineral loss. In fact, Beans uh, have a, a wonderful, are a wonderful resource of minerals and calcium. And so you're actually gaining some calcium when you're eating beans and lentils every day. So thanks, uh, Ilan, it's a good question. Um, Alka has the next question. Um, how do you handle high cholesterol if you cannot tolerate medicine? Um, I'm a vegetarian. So uh, I think you're asking if you have an elevated cholesterol, um, how do you bring it down without taking medication? And uh, so the, the, the answer is um, whole food plant-based diet, really focusing on, on vegetables, um, berries, mushrooms, onions, garlic, um, and spices. And even in a vegetarian diet, uh, where you're consuming dairy and eggs, those things can be drivers of cholesterol. And cholesterol is, it's, it's uh, created differently in different people. And so it's not uncommon for people to um, have, uh, eat small amounts of food and have a high cholesterol level. And they take the small amount of those cholesterol drivers out of their diet and their cholesterol comes down. There are other people on the scale that can have more, um, flexibility in their diet, eat foods that are not very healthy and their cholesterol remains low. It's just the biochemical differences in all of us, the epigenetic differences 
And, um, you know, it, it does not necessarily mean that the people that are eating more foods and have lower cholesterol are not causing harm in other parts of their body. They just have a lower cholesterol level and they can develop other diseases, uh, diabetes, autoimmune disease, and cancer. So the most important thing is to focus on, you know, those, those key vegetables and fruits and spices um, and removing the animal products and even some of the saturated fat that we might find uh, when we're consuming too much coconut. And we will see that the cholesterol levels come down. And, um, you know, I've worked with uh, thousands of people through the years and I've seen all kinds of different responses to cholesterol um, with a plant-based diet. And I've had people where they've been really doing a pretty good job in a whole food plant-based diet. And they start adding in coconut oil, more coconut products. And the, that even that addition of coconut with the saturated fat can drive their cholesterol up a little bit. So uh, it's just sometimes tinkering with your diet and, and um, discovering that, you know, this, those sources of saturated fat or the excess, um, uh, you know, animal products, even if it's dairy, can cause uh, the elevated uh, cholesterol levels. But the closer you get to it, just a really good whole food plant-based diet, no dairy, no eggs, lots of vegetables, um, your cholesterol does come down dramatically. And it's not uncommon. I've had a number of patients that have dropped their cholesterol 100 points in just six weeks on a whole food plant-based diet with a little activity and reducing stress. And um, the, the last thing to always remember is the microbiome can play into this. And so it's important to heal the gut as you're going through that process. So thanks, that's a great question. Next question um, is Austin, what supplements, if any, do you suggest taking on a daily basis if you're committed to a whole food plant-based diet? And uh, so it's a good question. And um, most important thing I always recommend before you start lots of supplements is ask yourself, do you really need it? Uh, and if so, why? Um, and some of them may require just a check by a physician to see if you really need it. So generally today, I recommend on a whole food plant-based diet, everyone take some vitamin B12. And it can be 250 micrograms a day, 1,000 micrograms once a week, uh, sublingual. Uh, it's a really good way to... Um, to just offset any vitamin B12 differences. And as we've talked about in the past, um, you know, 100 years ago, people did not require vitamin B12 because they lived much more connected to nature and to soil. And it's the soil organisms that, that uh, actually create vitamin B12 and animals get it because they're eating grass from the soil. And so uh, people that lived in uh, agrarian cultures would get vitamin B12 from the soil, but we don't do that today. So a little bit of vitamin B12. If you're in Northeast, Northwest, or inside a lot, have your vitamin D checked. If you need vitamin D, um, add some vitamin D, two to 3,000 international units on a daily basis. Um, and uh, D3 is the, uh, the vegan component. Um, you know, sometimes there are some people that need a little bit of iron, so you can add some iron. Uh, you can add other Plants that are high in iron, like barley wheatgrass powders, uh, hemp protein, just pure organic hemp protein has a lot of uh, iron. So you can add some of those as options to add in iron. But um, some people are deficient and need to add some iron. Um, adding a little bit of uh, omega-3s from algae may be helpful, especially as we age and uh, preventing um, age-related uh, cognitive decline or atrophy. So I recommend just adding a small amount of uh, omega-3s in, especially as you get into your 40s and 50s. Um, 
And other than that, I don't think you necessarily need supplements. Um, you know, there are situations where people may need to add some other supplements. Uh, there are parts of the country where um, iodine may be important, uh, especially in pregnant women, uh, lactating uh, women. Um, iodine can be helpful, especially for the uh, fetus. And so um, I either recommend using um, sea vegetables um, regularly in your meals or adding in a small amount of iodine on a regular basis, um, especially for women of childbearing age uh, and lactating. That, that can be really helpful as well. So hopefully that gives you some general guidance. Um, other than that, um, I do in some cases recommend for athletes that they add in some of those protein powders, but whole plant foods. And I really like hemp powder as the best choice of a whole protein source. Um, I'm not a big fan of the protein powders with lots of stuff in them. I like to keep it very simple and just have them add that to a big smoothie um, so that they can um, add in the, um, you know, the added protein if they need that. But uh, hopefully that gives you some guidance. If you have any more questions about specific supplements, Austin, just let me know and we can answer that as we go here. So thanks. That's a great question. Okay. Loretta, next question. Thank you. Uh, I'll read Loretta's question. When I started to shift to a whole food plant-based diet and gave up alcohol completely, I noticed that my immune system became weaker, many more colds per year, gynecological problems, et cetera, even though I was uh, never eating so healthy as I do now. Um, what could be the problem? Uh, well, it's a great question. Um, and a quick comment about alcohol. Um, you know, the, the alcohol cessation or abstinence is really beneficial. And uh, organizations like the World Health Organization now are saying that there's no safe level of alcohol consumption. Um, you know, two beverages a week for a, uh, a woman increases the risk of breast cancer. We know that every time we consume alcohol, it causes damage to the cells in our body, uh, kills brain cells, kills liver cells. So it's not a health substance. Uh, red wine does have uh, resveratrol and uh, phytochemicals that may be helpful. However, the, the um, the medium or the vehicle, the alcohol is harmful. That's why we use alcohol to wipe down counters because it kills bacteria, does the same thing to our gut and our cells. So if we want resveratrol, if we want to do more phytochemicals, eat red grapes, that's the best source. So that was the right choice on, um, on alcohol. Um, you know, a couple of uh, thoughts and I, you know, it would take a little more um, in-depth questioning to try and understand um, you know, why you're struggling, but just a few thoughts. Uh, stress suppresses the immune system, alters the microbiome. So, um, you know, I know people and I've been in situations myself uh, where I've been under stress, uh, not sleeping well, and I come down with a cold, even though I'm eating a really good diet. Um, so stress can suppress your immune system. Sleep deprivation is a stress on the body and can suppress your immune system. Um, you know, if you've not taken time to really heal your gut uh, through, um, you know, fermented foods, um, raw onions, uh, some greens, uh, some uh, daily mushrooms actually help to feed the microbiome, beans and lentils and a probiotic, I would spend a good 12 to 18 months really focusing on rebuilding your microbiome. It's likely that, um, you know, the alcohol killed off you know, many of the good bacteria in your microbiome and, you know, the history of a Western diet. So rebuilding the gut 
certainly improves the, the immune system. The research shows that the microbiome is responsible for 75% of the health of our immune system. So that's one of the first places that I look. Um, other things that you know I look at are vitamin D, um, taking some additional iodine to support the uh, thyroid, making sure you get some regular sunshine and activity. Um, those could also be helpful. Um, and then also in the winter, I like to just hyper nourish my body. So I'll just add more greens um, during the winter as well. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of guidance and a few places to start tinkering and looking to try and rebuild your immune system. Um, but likely I would really focus on that microbiome. Sean has the next question. Uh, what are your thoughts on the quantity of soy in males' diets, especially thinking about fertility and the amount of estrogen? Obviously, in moderation, but I've heard different points of view and would love to hear yours. Well, it's a really good question, Sean, and um, I'll just tell you how I kind of categorize it, which helps me make decisions on how I end up eating soy. So like in our home, we really focus on a whole food plant-based diet. So we're eating, you know, most of our food is, is whole plant foods. Um, we have tofu um, maybe once a week or three times a month. We eat uh, edamame, uh, we'll use soybeans, we put them in food, we'll eat them as a snack. Uh, we use occasional tempeh, and we don't use really any other soy products. So our total exposure to, to soy is actually pretty low. Um, and I believe that if, if we put it in that kind of a context where we're really trying to get from nutrient-rich, nutrient-dense whole plant foods, and using whole plants in the creation of meals, and then adding in a little bit of uh, soy, tofu, in a different meal, um, I think you're never going to be exposed to too much um, estrogen uh, in that way. Um, if somebody shifts, you know, into like a vegan diet, and they're eating, you know, soy bacon for breakfast, and soy burger for lunch, and tofu for dinner, and soy-based drinks and soy-based milk, you may be actually getting too many um, soy products in your diet, and you may actually have some issues um, with a greater exposure than is necessary, especially to some of those processed foods. So I think the, the solution is really just focusing on whole plant foods as the primary source of your diet. And you know, then the soy products kind of fall into the right space and the right amount, and you'll never eat too many. And I hope that gives you enough guidance. And, um, you know, it's, it's eating the whole plant foods that makes the, the body whole and healthy. And the soy products are a nice addition for flavor, for texture, uh, for some substance. And um, so that's, that's kind of how we add those into our diet. So I hope that gives general guidance. To me, that makes it a lot simpler than, you know, giving specific amounts, but thinking in the general context of a diet. So thanks, John. That's a really important question. Okay, Donna has the next question. Thank you, Donna. You always have so many questions. I appreciate this, Donna. I love your inquisitive mind, so thank you. Uh, Donna says, I purchased a body lotion and I noticed that it has hydro hydrogenated vegetable oil in it. I have a nutrition degree and was wondering if that can be absorbed into the skin and the bloodstream. Uh, well, that's a great question, Donna. And, um, you know, as you and I both know, and most of the people on this uh, call, that we, our skin absorbs far more than we ever imagined. And in fact, um, even in my medical career, I remember, you know, early in my medical career, they, they didn't believe that much could be absorbed through the skin. And 
Um, by the end of my medical career, there was a host of medications that were topical uh, because they learned that there were different ways to, um, to force those medications through the skin into the bloodstream. Um, I do not know the answer about hydrogenated vegetable oil in body lotions and whether or not that actually is absorbed into the skin and causes um, any difference. Uh, we know that consuming hydrogenated vegetable oil is damaging and it's inflammatory to the body. Um, however, I don't know if it actually gets absorbed into the skin. Um, my suspicion is that the, you know, the fat molecules are fairly large and that they would not necessarily be absorbed into the bloodstream. But um, it's a great question. So I'm going to actually do a little bit of research. I'm going to write myself a note when I get finished here. Um, and I will let you know uh, the next time that we have a call. Um, so actually, uh, if you'll just next time that we have uh, one of these, Donna, if you'll just give me a little reminder, I'll pull that note out and um, I'll have an answer for you. So thanks. It's a good question. Okay, Sally, thank you for your question. Uh, Sally has, how can I increase protein with a plant-based diet? Uh, fantastic question. Um, and so a couple of things, you know, a plant-based diet um, is sufficient in protein. Uh, they did a study and I, I have this slide that I love to put up uh, for people that ask the question, well, where do I get my protein? And the study looked at 500 calories of plants from peas and tomatoes, um, spinach and um, uh, uh, peas, tomatoes, spinach, and um it looked at animal products, which contained beef, pork, uh, some chicken, and milk. And they compared these 500 calories. And the 500 calories of plants had 33 grams of protein. 500 calories of animals had 34 grams of protein. And so the point was that, you know, eating 500 equal calories of plants or animals, you have protein. And when we look at the protein content of all plants, they all have some level of protein. And if you're consuming enough calories from a whole food plant-based diet, you will uh, obtain a sufficient amount of protein um, in your diet. And so um, you'll never be protein deficient. Um, if you're looking to increase protein, some things that can be helpful, some really good protein sources in a plant-based diet are beans, lentils, and chickpeas anywhere from 15, 18 to 20 grams of protein per cup. Um, edamame, uh, soybeans are an excellent source of protein. And if you're looking to increase the protein content, um, those can be a terrific source. Uh, we should all be consuming a small amount of nuts and seeds every day. Um, they've been shown to not only reduce the risk of cardiac disease, but they lengthen the telomeres. They actually make your, your cells younger over time. So that handful of nuts and seeds is a good source of protein every day. Broccoli, kale have an uh, excellent source of protein. Um, and so you're getting protein every time you consume those. Uh, for athletes, sometimes I'll add in some hemp protein as an additional source um, if they need some extra protein. But, you know, a well-balanced whole food plant-based diet with beans and lentils, um, chickpeas, and lots of leafy green vegetables will never be deficient in protein. Um, and in fact, you know, a good way to convince yourself of this is to keep track of how much you consume in a day and then just go to a food uh, calculator online and plug in um, the consumption uh, of each of those breakfast, lunch and dinner uh, components and you'll see that you'll get enough protein. Um, you know, a woman should get on average around 40 grams of protein in a day and a male 50 to 60 
uh, on average, um, and certainly those numbers can go up based upon activity levels, um, muscle mass, and um, you know sports. So, but when they look at the nitrogen studies, uh, those are, are safe levels of protein consumption. In America today, the average person is actually consuming, you know, between 100 and 120 grams of protein, so well in excess of what they need. And that actually comes with some detrimental effects to the body. It makes the body inflamed. It disrupts the microbiome. It's an acid load on the body, as we talked about earlier, and the body pulls calcium out of the bones as a buffer for those acids. Um, and in that way, uh, it becomes, uh, it has a negative effect on the body long-term. So a plant-based diet, you will never eat too much protein. You'll get exactly what you need. And it comes packaged with all those beautiful phytochemicals, antioxidants, minerals, and vitamins, and the essential fiber that you just don't get from an animal-based diet. And so the question I always ask people is, how do you want your protein packaged? You know, knowing that you'll never be deficient in protein, and that if you're eating enough calories from plant-based diet, you will get the protein that you need. The real question is, how do you want your protein packaged? Do you want it packaged with saturated fat, with uh, new 5GC, which is inflammatory with, um, in animal products, uh, heme iron, which is pro-oxidant and inflammatory associated with heart disease and diabetes and animal products, saturated fats, uh, or do you want it in plants where your protein comes with tons of phytochemicals, which reduce inflammation, turn on bone building cells, fight cancer, antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, and lots of fiber. Um, and so I, I prefer to get my protein from the plant-based sources. So that's a great question, Sally. It's one of the classic questions. It's really important to understand uh, because there are so many people that just don't believe you can get enough protein from a plant-based diet. There's a great movie that should be out in the next month. Uh, it's called The Game Changers. It's produced by James Cameron. Um, and it looks at all of these world-class athletes. Uh, and it shows that these, even some of these huge strong men are plant-based and they get more than enough protein uh, from their plant-based meals. So thank you, Sally. Uh, important question and one of the classic um, myths about eating a plant-based diet. Okay, Simone. All right, so Simone has our next question. Um, are there any favorable, favorable foods that can help with uh, sluggish, underperforming thyroid? Um, yes. Yeah, so a couple of things, Simone, with thyroid. Um, you can have thyroid disease from an overactive immune system where the immune system is actually attacking the thyroid. And um, in that way, uh, healing the gut because it's an autoimmune condition, really focusing on the gut healing as we've talked about a little bit earlier. And um, a whole food plant-based diet, removing all animal products, especially things like dairy, um, it can come back. Um, and that uh, I've seen that many, many times where the whole body, the system really comes back online. Uh, if it is just a little bit of mild hypothyroidism, I recommend the same thing, but adding a little bit of iodine back into the diet. And it can be done through uh, nori sheets and sea vegetables or it can be done by just buying a uh, eyedropper full of um, uh, iodine and taking three to five drops on a daily basis. Uh, and so, you know, one of those two can also help to boost that uh, thyroid. Um, I've also found that, you know, the other components of health improve the thyroid condition with activity, 
getting a good night's sleep and reducing stress can make a real difference in, in boosting the, uh, the condition of your thyroid. So hopefully that gives you some guidance, but think about, you know, adding some nori or sea vegetables or iodine supplement in there, um, as well as really helping to heal the gut and, um, and pursuing a good whole food plant-based diet. Uh, some other things that can be helpful, um, you know, spices are very anti-inflammatory. So adding some more spices in there, turmeric, uh, cinnamon, basil cloves, um, you know, great spices to help reduce inflammation. And uh, some raw onion really helps to feed the microbiome. So mushrooms are also great for the microbiome. So those are some things that I would add in as well. So thanks, Simone. Uh, Sally has the next question. Uh, how would you notice if you're not getting enough protein? Um, so one of the one of the um, you look and you're losing muscle mass and you're losing some of the integrity of your muscular system. Um, so that would that would be an evidence of a protein deficiency. You could also um, Validate that on lab work where you can look at albumin levels and total protein, and you can see that your pro your body was not getting enough protein that you're actually protein deficient. Um, it's very rare today for people not to get enough protein if they're really eating enough calories from a whole food plant-based diet. Um, we may see that in somebody eating lots of junk food uh, where they're not getting sufficient sources of protein, uh, but protein deficiency in the United States is very rare. Um, it does appear sometimes in, you know, uh, malnourished children and elderly. So those are the two places that, you know, I would be suspicious. Um, but um, you know, largely, it's it's uh, it's not very common. So either lab work or if you notice that you're you're having some issues, um, you know, with your muscle mass, I would just recommend seeing the physician. They can do some lab work and do a good evaluation. Okay, Alan, thanks for your patience. Next question. Um, I started whole food plant-based eating in 2015. All right, good job, Alan. I feel great, but constipation is a recent issue. What can I do? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, so, you know, a couple of things that I think about with constipation. Um, uh, you know, if you're eating lots of whole plant foods, including cooked and raw, uh, you should be getting enough fiber. So um, that would be the first thing is to make sure you're getting, you know, Enough, at least 50% of your diet from raw fruits and vegetables, the rest cooked to have sufficient fiber. Um, second, I always think about water intake. Uh, are you drinking enough water? It can also cause constipation. So you know, as we're entering into the summer season and it's hotter and we're sweating more, drinking more water, six, eight glasses a day, and a lot, you may need to consume more. So that would be uh, important stress um, because of cortisol can slow down the whole system and cause constipation. So it's always good for all of us to do a stress check periodically and see where we are. Um, there are some medications that can cause that. Um, and so just thinking through if you're taking any medications about medications. Um, Microbiome is important in this. So if there's been a shift, uh, sometimes I've seen this if people have, you know, for some reason had to take an antibiotic course um, and it disrupts their microbiome and they develop constipation. It'll require some rebuilding of the, the microbiome with probiotics. 
Um, so that's kind of a, a good handful of things to think through. And uh, if it persists and it's not getting better after you've done those things, I always recommend just seeing a doctor, having them do a check, make sure that nothing's being missed um, that should be caught earlier than later. So try those, that, that handful of things first. More water, more fiber, more raw, probiotics, more activity, changing stress, getting enough sleep, um, thinking through any medications, and see if those things don't change it. And uh, if it's still an issue, go see your doctor and have them do a good workup. So thanks, Alan. Uh, Austin, I also appreciate your inquisitiveness. Thanks for all your questions. Uh, it's awesome. I love, I love uh, inquisitive minds because uh, it says you're really trying to figure it out. You're going to gain um, a real understanding of it so that you can be a teacher and help change other people's lives. Uh, so what's so bad about cook using cooking oils? Uh, which would you recommend over others? So um, cooking oils are, you know, it's the, a, a couple of things about cooking oils. Um, the first, uh, especially in our country, where, you know, more than 70% of our population is overweight or obese. And in some cities uh, and states, a third of our children are actually obese. Um, excess calories are an issue. And people that need to lose weight need to eliminate those added calories from their diet. And cooking with oil is one of those places where we can add a lot of excess calories. Um, as we've said before, you know, one oil is 4,000 calories per pound. It's 120 calories per tablespoon. And so when you cook with oil, the oil is naturally absorbed into the food and becomes a part of the caloric density of the food that you're serving. And so, um, you know, it's not uncommon. I've done this taking care of many patients who have had uh, difficulty losing weight. And we start adding up the places where they use cooking oil or oil and they're, you know, eating five, six, seven tablespoons of oil in a day, which is, you know, six, seven, eight hundred plus calories um, additional in their diet that they don't even know they're getting because it just slips down, has no effect on satiety or fullness, and it gets absorbed and stored right away. I always like to joke with uh, people at my emergence and I'll tell them, you know, it's lips to hips in three minutes because that oil is classically prepared to just go right into storage. So the first reason not to use oils is looking to uh, minimize that excess caloric density that doesn't add any real health benefit. You know, oils have very few um, phytochemicals. They have no fiber. Uh, they have very little uh, health benefit to the body. And so um, eliminating those as an excess source of calories is really important. Uh, the second thing is when we heat oil, it becomes oxidized and it can become inflammatory. So you know, especially heating oil to really high temperature. And so it can become an inflammatory source um, in the body as well. And uh, so it's for those two reasons that I just generally don't recommend that people use oils. Um, you know, if you're preparing a special meal and you want to use an extra virgin olive oil, that's fine. You know, absolutely do that. Uh, if you're baking something and you need to use a small amount of oil, you can absolutely do that. But I really try to encourage people not to use oil on a regular basis. It's just extra calories that you don't need. So I hope that gives you some just general guidance and, uh, and you know, from our experience, what we've seen. Um, Austin has the next question as well. So uh, which foods hold more nutritional value when cooked and how about raw foods versus cooked foods? So another really uh, classic question um, that's so important, and there was a, there's a, a big raw food movement where they 
like to say that um, you know raw food um, really has a far more health benefit than cooked, and so we need to eat all of our calories from raw foods. But one of the challenges with that um, is that it's very difficult to eat raw foods and get 100% of your calories without being very disciplined, very intentional about what you're cooking and eating every day. I also have taken care of people that were raw foodists, and because they're actually so hungry just from eating carrots and celery and you know raw food dishes, they eat a lot of nuts and seeds and they actually can gain weight. So um, it's difficult to manage that caloric balance with just raw food. You have to be um, very intentional about the way you do that. A lot of the research shows that in cooked food, we get uh, a lot of nutrients that we might not get in raw food. And so the cooking process destroys some but makes others available, uh, like lycopene in tomatoes, lycopene um, becomes activated and our body can use it. So we get certain chemicals from cooked food. So having a nice balance, you know, at least 50% of your diet raw and at least 50, uh, 50% um, is a nice balance of, of raw and cooked foods. And so it's easy to add in those raw vegetables through, you know, smoothies, through um, vegetables and snacks and hummus, through salads. Um, there's lots of ways to add in, you know, robust raw vegetables and fruits into our diet. The, um, the nutritional value of, um, of food is really ultimately dependent upon the soil that the food is grown in. And, you know, when they measure nutritional values, there's been an argument for a long time, you know, in the conventional organic agricultural world about uh, nutritional content of food, conventional versus agricultural, um, uh, organic, we see that um, the, the significant difference between organic and conventional is that organic produce has a much higher level of phytochemicals and antioxidants than conventional. And this has been recently validated in a study that was done with uh, Rodale Institute and Hershey Medical Center. And they found that by growing food in organic soil, that the organic soil and the, and the living organisms in the organic soil help the plant to absorb ergothionine from the soil, which became a part of the plant. And the ergothionine is a potent anti-cancer substance in the foods. And in conventionally grown produce, there was no ergothionine in the plant. And so they're doing more research uh, and looking at other plants and other phytochemicals. But certainly the suggestion is that when we grow foods in the right soil, we get a, a much more rapid absorption and almost like a symbiotic relationship with the bacteria that are in that soil to create and uh, transfer some of these phytochemicals and antioxidants into the plants that have a lot of health benefits for our bodies. So the soil is different, uh, is significantly different. We've also seen as we have shifted towards this conventional agriculture um, using pesticides and herbicides that uh, our soils have changed. And uh, to get the same level of vitamin C in uh, an orange today um, compared to oranges in 1950, we would need to eat at least six oranges to get the same amount of vitamin C that you would get from one orange in 1950.